I'm Aaron Ross Powell, and this is Reactionary Minds, a project of the unpopulist. While both sides today have rather less respect for genuine political liberalism than they ought to, the ascension of far-right populism to the presidency, its near-total takeover of one of the two major parties, and its continuing efforts to establish control of our institutions and culture make the American right the most severe and immediate threat to our republic and our freedoms. However, just what the right is, and what it means to be a conservative, if those are even the same thing, can be a bit slippery. And the history of the American right and American conservatism is quite a bit more complicated, politically and ideologically, than many are aware. To help me tease out just what it means to be of the right, as well as the evolution of conservatism and conservative ideas, I'm joined by Matthew Continetti. He's a resident fellow in social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new and genuinely excellent book, The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. I want to start with the title of your book. So it's called The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. And immediately, I think it raises a question, which is the relationship between what we call the right and what we call conservatism. Are those the same thing? Not necessarily. Um, So the book is called The Right because I wanted to have um, a way to describe a very large category of thinkers and um, political figures and activists who are arrayed against the left. They might not agree on anything, but they do agree that they are against the left, against progressivism, against uh, liberalism in some cases, uh, against totalitarianism uh, in other cases. Within that broad category, um, I do think there's something called American conservatism. And in particular, there's something uh, called the American conservative movement, uh, which was a political formation that really came of age uh, after the uh, Second World War in the crucible of the Cold War. But that is a small part of this much larger grouping called the right. And I kind of wanted to get at that in the title. uh, And then I also discussed that uh, briefly in the introduction to the book. That's interesting in light of one of the themes that I think comes through in the story that you tell over this hundred years of the the conservative movement as not so much a unified ideology, but as a set of factions in this kind of sine wave of influence. Um, is there then something core, like a core ideological principle that we can say defines in because you said there's the right exists in opposition to the left, sure. But for a conservative, when we look at this story of neocons and paleocons and reformicons and national review, and you you lump in like the Ron Paulites and the populists and the Trumpists, like all of that, and they're all under this conservative label, but is there a core ideological position that says – this is a conservative that unifies them above and beyond opposition to the left. Well, I do think for most of the figures who self-identify as American conservative, there is a a perspective that's oriented toward the founder's constitution. That is to say, um, American conservatives kind of define themselves in opposition to Uh, basically the idea of American government that was born out of the New Deal after Franklin Roosevelt's election. And there were precursors to it um, in Woodrow Wilson's progressivism. Um, So you'll find uh, all sorts of conservatives, whether they're Barry Goldwater, whether they're Ronald Reagan, um, William F. Buckley Jr., Ron Paul, they will look toward the founder's constitution. They'll say that American government kind of went astray Um, beginning with FDR, and then um, much more so with LBJ and the Great Society. And that the job of the American conservative is to, um, if not restore the Founders Constitution, to kind of keep its memory alive um, and uh, 
pr preserve the, the the written constitution um, uh, in our law and in our in our um, politics. I think that's basically a commonality you can find. You can also say that many people who call themselves conservatives um, share, you know, certain kind of um, temperamental characteristics. Um, typically, conservatives are uh, more um, pessimistic about human nature. Um, they might say realistic. Uh, they're they are more um, uh, aware of the unintended consequences of government action. Um, they tend to have a tragic view of life, but that's not true for all figures on the American right or even the American conservative movement. I mean, you look at the two most important conservatives of the 20th century, uh, Ronald Reagan and William F. Buckley Jr., neither of them was a temperamental conservative. Uh, Reagan was sunny. Reagan believed that human beings left alone would reach their potential just naturally. And Buckley himself has said that he he didn't share in the conservative um, kind of dour outlook on the world. Uh, and that was apparent in his life as well. He was adventuresome. He was uh, humorous. Uh, he, he lived life to the fullest. Um, so I, I kind of come back again and again to this idea of the importance of the Constitution as kind of a fundament of the uh, American conservative movement in the 20th and 21st centuries. You date, or at least you start your history in the 1920s, which gives you the nice 100 years of the title. What happened in the 1920s? Because the Great Depression wasn't until the very tail end of that decade. And so the opposition to the New Deal and so on wasn't until later. What happened in the 1920s that launched what you call the conservative movement? Sure. Well, so I begin in the 1920s mainly because I needed to give the reader a sense of what America and what American politics was like prior to the New Deal, right? You know, if conservatives in the 1930s were saying that they lost something, we need to know what they lost. And what they lost was the kind of understanding of American politics that was um, present in the Harding, Coolidge, uh, and Hoover administrations. A little bit less so in Hoover. The other reason I begin in the 1920s was uh, the 1920s is really when the Republican Party becomes um, associated with a rejection of progressivism. So prior to the 1920s, progressivism was kind of um, basically in the air. It was in the water. It was both parties were um, uh, drinking from it, um, but both parties were tempted by progressivism. Uh, TR, of course was a progressive. He left the Republican Party <laughs> to, to run as a progressive in 1912. Um, the ideas of progressivism, the ideas that the federal government can be the agency of uh, social mobility, of uh, economic and moral uplift, that um, objective experts can apply their uh, technical knowledge to solve public policy issues, um, a sense of historical progress, that things are moving in the direction of a um, improved humanity. All those things really become rejected by um, the, the leaders of the Republican Party in the 1920s. And so when Warren Harding runs for president, um, he is running against the Wilsonian legacy, the progressive legacy. Uh, he's standing for normalcy, or what he and his successor Calvin Coolidge called Americanism. They didn't think of themselves as conservative. Uh, they just thought of themselves as standing for what America was about. Uh, and that meant a, um, a fidelity to the written constitution. That meant a, a free enterprise and a laissez-faire approach to economics at home. That also meant non-intervention abroad and skepticism of collective security and of international organizations. Um, and so for those reasons, I thought it would be helpful to begin the story in the 1920s, just so readers got a sense of, well, that was what things were like before the Great Depression, before FDR came in and really changed what Americans expected of their government. Did race and class and culture and religion play much of a role in the conservative or Republican identity back then? Because that's, that's a, when I talk about that sine wave of rising and falling influence, that's been a dominant theme in conservatism too, is like that reactionary element as well. Sure. 
well, you can't tell the story of America without all of those four things I think you mentioned, right? Race, culture. class, uh, religion, um, maybe there, and culture. Yeah, I mean, that is American history. Um, so the Republican Party in the 1920s was still very much uh, Lincoln's party. Uh, the Republicans thought of themselves as Lincolnians, that is the extension of uh, Lincoln's emancipation and uh, crusade for political equality for all Americans. So you would see the Republicans, um, for example, support the anti-lynching laws in the 1920s and fight with the Southern Democrats um, who were against such things. Um, the, on immigration was slightly different. Um, the Republicans um, tended to be hostile to immigration in the 1920s. Um, they kind of stood for old stock America, kind of wasp um, America. Um, uh, and so um, Harding and Coolidge basically supported the Immigration Restriction Acts that ended immigration to the United States for basically 40 years. Um, class, uh, I would say, you know, the Republican Party, it was a pro-business party. Um, it was the party of kind of the, um, also the Midwestern kind of small businessmen. Um, uh, and then uh, religion, it was, as I say, it was a Protestant party. It was, um, it was hostile to uh, the Catholics uh, who made up the bulk of the, um, the Democratic Party and who were mainly associated with the, uh, the cities, part of the urban uh, base of the Democratic Party. And so then how did the, the Great Depression and the New Deal change the nature of things? The Great Depression delegitimized the Republican economic policy. Um, uh, Hoover is an interesting figure. The presidential Hoover is different from the Hoover um, who we remember, who is the Hoover who, uh, after he left the presidency. Um, Hoover's a remarkable figure. He, he was, you know, um, this brilliant engineer. He helped um, provide relief after the Great War, after World War I. He's the Secretary of Commerce uh, in the 1920s, uh, very much uh, more of a progressive uh, in that administration, thinking that government and business can work together and really um, uh, enrich America. Uh, he's confronted with the depression, the stock market crash, and then of course the, the banking crisis, which is the real Great Depression and the real collapse of the American economy. And he doesn't he doesn't really know what to do. He's kind of torn in between kind of the, the Harding Coolidge instincts of, well, let everything settle, right? And the more progressive instincts that he has, which is, well, uh, the situation is so out of control, government needs to do something. And so he um, intervenes somewhat. He provides, tries to provide loans to businesses. He does try to um, uh, provide some, some types of relief. He spends a little bit on deficits. On the other hand, there's such a, um, a stigma attached to de deficit spending uh, in America at that time that uh, he's also raising taxes. It doesn't work. And he loses, of course, uh, to uh, FDR in, in 1932, one of the you know, most critical elections in American history. Um, FDR comes in and he basically says he's going to try anything to stop this, to stop this, you know, 25% unemployment. And what that means is base a huge expansion of the federal government's role in the economy, the cartelization of the American economy, uh, huge numbers of uh, new bureaucracies, instituted. The federal government is going to become more involved in the everyday life of the individual American uh, than ever before in American history. And um, there's a side debate about whether he, these measures worked, uh, but the, there is no debate that FDR revolutionized um, the, Amer the federal government's role in American life. And then F Hoover becomes a critic of FDR. Hoover becomes um, one of the first conservatives, because and he here's a great letter that I quote from the book that he's like, you know, I think of myself as a 19th century liberal. This is Hoover. I stand for the individual rights. I stand for individualism in the marketplace, um, low low taxes, less government. But now I can't use that word to describe me, so I'm going to have to call myself a conservative. And that's really where American conservatism is born in, de, in opposition to the New Deal, in the sense that they're conserving the founders' constitution, the founders' understanding of American political economy against 
FDRs and the progressive revision. Is that then the source of this this interesting tension that exists within the broader American right slash conservatism, say compared to European conservative and right movements, which is this this classical liberalism within the right, because liberalism historically it was a movement of the left against. I mean, in, in Europe, it was for liberation against the power structures of the monarchy and the class system and so on. But in the US, you have liberals in this sense placing themselves within the conservative movement, even though liberalism exists in opposition to the right in general, which like how do we tease that out? Because it is it doesn't make a lot of sense outside of the US. Well, it's very confusing. <laughs> it's very confusing. Political nomenclature gets very complicated very quickly. But I think there's you're right. I think that for people like Hoover, for the Republican critics of the New Deal, the conservative Republican critics of the New Deal, there was a large part of what was understood to be classical liberalism in their philosophy. However, there was also part of um, the anti-Roosevelt coalition that was more like what you described as the European right. And here I point to the Southern agrarians and the Southern conservatives. And the Southern agrarians opposed FDR because he, he represented the uh, forces of modernity. He represented the nationalization of American culture and political economy. Um, he also represented a threat to the racial hierarchy of the American South. And so beginning in the 1930s, you find this alliance between the, um, the, the, the Hoovers the, um, uh, and other kind of free market opponents of FDR and the Southern Democrats who don't like FDR because uh, uh, they like FDR spending, but they don't like the sense of a big government, which they recognize could be a threat to their power um, in the South. And so for that kind of blood and soil conservatism is very much present in the Southern Democrats, um, less so in this group of basically pro-business, pro-market Republicans who who look who who are in the tradition of Harding and Coolidge, and who look toward the Founders' Constitution and to Lincoln continually uh, for inspiration. It's this kind of amalgam of both groups, and this, of course, kind of sets the pattern um, for the rest of the century and beyond. And that raises what seems to be another theme of tension within the the conservative story that you tell, which is, and this kind of previews like. Frank Meyer and and the fusionist approach when it comes up later, but this tension between liberty and authority within conservatism of we're we're pro constitution, we're pro free enterprise, pro free markets, and so on, and and limited government, but then constantly there is a rhetoric that runs through even even kind of the cons like the elite conservative like intellectuals of we need authority either in the form of religion typically Christianity, or in respect for institutions of authority. And they seem to blame like societal breakdown on people basically not respecting institutions of authority. And what I'm wondering is how much some of that tension has to do with the kind of rise of technocratic progressivism. And let me see if I can, because this might be a bit confused as a question, but uh, there's like in the beginning of, I think in the introduction to the latest edition of Russell Kirk's The Conservative Mind, he makes this frame, which happens a lot in conservative writings, which is basically we need the, – the options in front of us are either if we kind of let people – if we don't have enforced Christian values and kind of these old ways and tradition, what we end up with is this rationalism, constructive, technocratic, like they're going to try to rebuild humanity in um, in in these ways that don't really work out in practice, like a top-down construction of culture and identity and so on, um, which is a very like progressive sort of view. Um, and And so the alternative then is identity through tradition, Christianity, 
traditional power structures and so on. Whereas it seems like that's there's almost like a false dichotomy there. Like there's a the third way is just like freedom and autonomy and self construction of identity and so on. And so that that tension within conservatism of we need we need these kind of external forms of authority. Does that rise up as a result of like the progressive approach as a counter to that? And so does in the absence of that, would we have seen the the conservative movement be more, I guess, like Frank Meyer libertarian than it might have been? Well, um, I think the you know the American right uh, prior to World War II was very much libertarian. Um, what they the right thought of itself as individualist. Um, it wanted it was anti-statist. It was constitutionalist. It was anti-interventionist because war is the health of the state. Um, so you mentioned Russell Kirk. Uh, Russell Kirk's conservative mind first comes out in 1953. Kirk had was tied to that Southern agrarian tradition uh, that I talked about. He had a different understanding of what the right was. He had a European understanding of what the right was, and I talk about in the book how he hardly discusses Madison or you know or Jefferson. His for him the political tradition in the United States begins and ends basically with. Well, it begins with John Adams, and he also includes John Calhoun, okay? So Kirk and his remarkably successful book and his amazing literary career over the decades represents uh, traditionalist conservatism. He basically imports European conservatism to the United States and, 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 and uh, kind of includes it with uh, uh, Southern conservatism, the agrarianism, in a, in a new package. So it's very uh, highly emphasizes um, order as opposed to freedom, uh, virtue as opposed to liberty, very skeptical of capitalism, um, very skeptical of industry. So that has to kind of work with and sometimes against the American right coming out of World War II uh, which still retains a lot of its libertarianism, a lot of its classical liberalism, as we were discussing, but is also beginning to change its attitude toward foreign policy because it is uh, extremely anti-communist and, and wants to destroy the Soviet Union. It wants to roll back communism because of the, the threat it perceives from, it, from global communism. Um, and this is the debate between freedom and virtue. Uh, you know, uh, liberty and, and uh, order that kind of goes throughout the, the history of the American right. I would say this, though, that um, someone like Frank Meyer, while a libertarian, uh, also thought that there needed to be a, a healthy dose of authority and order in people's private lives. So the way that I would think about it is this. Uh, for conser for American conservatives after the Cold War, um, freedom was a political uh, value. It was an economic value. But socially and culturally, uh, America required institutions that could help prepare individuals for political and economic freedom. So they wanted they wanted the authority respected within the social and cultural sphere because they believed that things like the American family, the neighborhood, the church, the school, all of these things went into preparing and equipping Americans to exercise freedom in the political and economic spheres. And so that's how they kind of departed from um, libertarians um, uh, it, after the Second World War, in addition to their different foreign policy. So I, I'm not sure where that comes from. I think that, I mean, I think that's just a more general kind of conservative attitude. You can actually see traces of it in Edmund Burke himself, um, going back, you know, to the 18th century. So, but I think that's how we can distinguish between libertarians on one side of the American conservatives um, and then Russell Kirk and the traditionalists on the other side of the American conservatives. What do conservatives mean in this context by virtue? Because it does play a large role in a lot of conservative arguments. And it's often the thing, as you said, that's like traded off against freedom, that there's this like the 
so the, the argument goes something like the left wants all of this social freedom, which comes at the expense of virtue. And if we if virtue declines, that's bad. So we need this authority, whether it's in the government, in the form of the government, if you're one kind of conservative, it's in the form of social structures and hierarchies and so on and traditional ways in the form of the other. But what is meant by virtue or where is that idea coming from? Like, how do you point to this is virtue versus this is not within the conservative tradition? Well, I think, I mean, for most conservatives, it comes from religion. I think there's also a philosophical understanding of virtue that informs um, some of the more intellectual conservatives. Um, but for most American conservatives, it's uh, Christianity that tells them what is virtuous behavior. And for uh, the, the Cold War conservative movement, it, uh, Catholicism was, was hugely important. Um, so the, the you can look in the catechism, <laughs> what is virtue? It's, it's right there. Um, it's spelled out. Uh, and I just make a note on this. I mean, that is a very important shift. Um, the, the move of uh, not all American Catholics, but a significant portion of them into the conservative camp um, is a response to communism, right? So, you know, prior to the Second World War, uh, many, many Catholics um, did not consider themselves um, part of the American right. If they did, they tended to be kind of um, isolationist. They, they, they were, you know, pro-Irish, anti-British. Um, they come out of World War II, and the American Catholic community is extremely worried, not only about the threat that communism poses uh, to religion, um, but also to to freedom, because many of the uh, American Catholics trace their roots to countries that are now that are now under the domination of uh, Soviet uh, power or under threat of Euro communism, Soviet communism. So, so that's a big move. And um, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's a traditional conception of virtue, I guess. And and what that means in the West is a biblical one. We've mentioned in passing Buckley and. National Review. So I'd like to turn to them because National Review is so just dominant in the history of what we tend to think of as a 20th century American conservatism. So who was Buckley and what was the motivation behind National Review? Well, um, William F. Buckley Jr., uh, probably the most important, uh, I'd say, journalist of the 20th century. Um, he, 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 created the conservative intellectual movement in America, or at least turned it into a movement. There were conservative intellectuals. He brought them all together. Uh, he's born in uh, 1925. Uh, uh, he's uh, a scion of um, uh, kind of an oil family. His father was a wildcatter who had kind of made his fortune in Mexico and in Latin America, and then was kind of run out of those countries when they had left-wing revolutions. And so William Buckley Sr. Uh, hated uh, hated socialism because uh, he had experienced its uh, threat to, to business firsthand. Uh, Buckley's a tyro. I mean, he kind of grows up in this uh, family. Uh, there, uh, he has many, many siblings. Um, uh, he goes uh, to Yale, uh, for undergraduate degree after the war, um, where he becomes kind of a campus celebrity in debate in the school paper. Um, he graduates, briefly works for the CIA, and then he publishes a book, which is an attack on Yale for not being sufficiently Christian and free market, God and Man at Yale. And then God and Man at Yale establishes him um, at a, you know, in his mid-20s as kind of this uh curiosity on the American intellectual scene. He's, a, he's denounced uh, by um, uh, kind of leaders of the American Eastern establishment uh, for having the, the audacity to write this book. He also recognizes at this time in the early 1950s that um, there are a bunch of kind of critics of New Deal liberalism, critics of um, the containment policy that Truman, President Harry Truman announced against the Soviet Union. And who want to have uh, a restoration of the Founders' Constitution, who want to have uh, a rollback of the New Deal at home and of communism abroad. And he sees these figures out there. And um, he also sees that the, the conservative publications uh, available at the time 
are kind of falling apart. One of them, H.L. Mencken's old magazine, The American Mercury, has become an anti-Semitic uh, uh, tract. Uh, the other, the Freeman, is falling apart internally because of disputes over the Cold War um, and the, the role of the state in the defense of America and the world. And so what's required is a new publication to kind of serve as the platform for all of these critics of the New Deal and of containment. And um, uh, he begins with this idea of the National Weekly, and it ends up as the National Review, uh, launched in uh, late November 1955. And uh, the National Review becomes the Bible of American conservatism, um, uh, I'd say up until 2016. When you say the Bible of national conservatism, I guess or of not of American conservatism, national conservatism is it later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of conservatives of American. Con I guess yeah. the Bible for who is, is he like, who is the audience of national review? Because again, it's a American conservatives, very wildly fractious movement. Um, like who is he, who is it talking to and how much is it trickling down to like your average, say Republican voter is being informed by the national review? Well, at that time, it, uh, they were not. Uh, at that time, the Republican Party was uh, run by figures like Dwight Eisenhower, Richard Nixon, and Nelson Rockefeller, uh, the governor of New York, who um, uh, Buckley's group uh, were critical of. They, they did. They disliked them. Um, uh, Buckley was le the leader of what were called Buckleyites, um, mainly young people uh, who uh, thought that there should be a clear choice between the two parties, that the Republican Party should not be uh, New Deal light, it should stand for um, uh, conservative principles. Um, the, the National Review was kind of pitched toward uh, elites, you know, I mean, the type of people who would read a bi-weekly magazine of uh, politics and literature, you know. Um, but it was very popular among young people. And uh, Buckley became the spokesman for a rising generation of conservative that was um, for the free market at home and uh, hardline anti-communist abroad. Um, and so uh, uh, his viewpoint then, you know, there are others who are, who are associated with it and, and really bursts onto the scene in 1960 when Buckley's brother-in-law and a uh, one-time senior editor at National Review, Brent Bozell, ghostwrites a book for Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona called The Conscience of a Conservative. And then The Conscience of a Conservative reaches a much vaster audience than National Review while reflecting National Review's ideas. So, uh, And then Goldwater, of course, it becomes a Republican nominee in 1964, introduces post-war uh, American conservatism, Cold War conservatism, into the political mainstream. Um, so I guess that's that's who he's leading. That's who he's um, that's who he's inspiring when we talk about Buckley. What was it then about this message? So the National Review message, given broader voice by Goldwater, that didn't work because Goldwater Goldwater lost, and it wasn't until Reagan that we had a successful, like a nationally successful person embodying a lot of this. Like what was it at the time in the sixties that didn't at all resonate? Well, Goldwater was successfully portrayed as an extremist uh, by Lyndon Johnson, the incumbent democratic president. Um, his views were not uh, mainstream. Um, the, the, there's, still a lot had to happen for American conservative ideas to be taken seriously. And Goldwater kind of played into the caricature um, when he would talk about, you know, tactical nukes, or he would talk about, um, you know, his line in the in his acceptance speech where he says extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, right? Uh, and then, of course, there was Goldwater's position on civil rights, which also can't be ignored. Uh, where uh, he was against the Civil Rights Act of 1964, despite the fact that it was Republican votes that made the act law. Um, and that, uh, despite the fact, too, that the Republican platform in 1964 supported the Civil Rights Act 
<laughs> so, and so it was a weird situation where the party was nominating someone who had voted against it, the, the Civil Rights Act, but who was committing himself to enforcing it if he were president. But the, that that too was kind of out of the, outside the mainstream, um, and all of that is responsible for uh, Goldwater's uh, stunning landslide loss. However, you know the conservative movement at the time kind of took solace in the loss. They weren't as they were kind of upset, obviously, but they also saw that hey, we we had come pretty far. You know, and the the joke the joke among conservatives is also always well. You know, twenty seven million people can't be wrong because that's how many people how many votes Goldwater got. Not many, but that's a lot, right? And so that they viewed the Goldwater campaign as a floor, not a ceiling. It was a place from which they could build. It wasn't the it wasn't the apogee of their movement. That would come that would come later. I'm going to ask about the civil rights movement and the National Review and conservative elite response to it. Because there's a very striking passage in your book where you're talking about a speech that Buckley gave in 1965 to, I think it's the New York police, Catholic police organization, um, where he's talking about mm-hmm. a yep. the different treatment in the press between a civil rights activist who was murdered and a policeman in Mississippi who was killed. And it it seemed like this got to a a view of the state of civil rights in the United States that is indicative of, I think, a certain way of conservatism, at least the time, like overprivileging authority versus, say, rights or justice. But maybe I'm misreading it. Um, so I'll just he what he says is. That basically the the killing of this police officer um, and the different treatment is they it is no accident. So this is the quote he says: "It's no accident at all that the police should be despised in an age infatuated with revolution and ideology." And that was really striking because it seemed to me that there might be other reasons besides infatuation with ideology and revolution that someone that the civil rights movement might be upset with the way that police were behaving in Mississippi in 1965. You think? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I don't think yeah. that police officer and, was killed by civil rights activists though. Yeah. No, no, no. But, but like, he's not yet. Yeah, no, I'm not like the specific death of this po- police officer, but he's talking about dislike of the police. Right. And talking about Mississippi 1965 and right. blaming it on kind of infatuation with ideology. And, and so was how, yeah. Was the conservative movement with Buckley and then Goldwater like equipped to kind of wrestle with the real issues of the civil rights movement or was this – because this attitude sure. seems like kind of out of touch. Well, not to the police in the sure. audience who, who really liked that part of the speech. It then, of course, was attacked by the New York Times and, and uh, that kind of begins giving Buckley the idea that he might want to run for mayor of New York in 1965, uh, a couple of things. I mean, um, so I do think we have to distinguish between Goldwater and Buckley. Goldwater was um, very much in pro-integration. Um, he uh, he was not, he, he, he was in his private life, he was not a racist um, by any means. He supported the desegregation of um, the Senate cafeteria. He was a member of the Arizona NAACP. He his opposition to the uh, Civil Rights Act was uh, on the basis that he could find no constitutional authorization for its involvement in public accommodations um, and in education. Um, I, now, look, I think he was wrong, but that was it wasn't it wasn't a racial argument he was making. It was it was a constitutional one. Buckley, though, did make cultural arguments against civil rights um, throughout the 1950s, kind of into the 1960s, though less so. Um, uh, And so I think that's one difference. Uh, In this speech in particular, um, there are a few things that I think are interesting that we can observe in it. One is support for law and order, uh, which is a conservative trope uh, to this day. Another is an attack on the media, <laughs> which is uh, a conservative trope to this day. 
Um, and then too, like a sense of uh, a sense of audience. Like Buckley is speaking to these cops. These cops tend to come um, from white working class backgrounds, um, and they really like his message. And yet, you know, he's William F. Buckley Jr. He's this kind of weird pseudo aristocratic figure with the unidentifiable accent and uh you know the the uh large vocabulary with multi-syllabic words um so i don't know how that i don't know if i'm answering your question directly i mean i would say again the you're right to point to the importance that authority plays among american conservatives but it's a sense that you need a certain baseline of order in order to enjoy freedom. And that baseline of order involves personal safety. And so that has made, that has made conservatives, you know, pro-police. Um, uh, though I think in this, I mean, just what Buckley's being, um, in my view, supercilious in, in this speech. I mean, it's, you know, that he shouldn't, he, and he claimed that he wasn't, you know, diminishing the death of, I think uh, the civil rights actors, uh, civil rights um, activist's name was Viola Luazzo, I think was her name. But, um, but it, it, yeah, I mean, it's not a move. He, it's not a move that Buckley would have made even 10 years later, I think. I want to jump ahead a bit because your book is 500 pages long, covers 100 years, and it's incredibly fast moving history even at 500 pages. So I recommend there's there's a lot of fascinating stuff in the book and I recommend to listeners to to check it out, but I want to jump ahead to populism and trumpism and what happened. So what I mean, what happened because we had as you said we had National Review as the the bible of American conservatism, but then in 2016 National Review publishes its anti-Trump issue where they come out against him, but the next, I mean, the, the years since have basically been a repudiation of that issue as far as the conservative movement is concerned. So what happened? Well, it's a long story, uh, but, you know, I think it starts with the end of the Soviet Union. Um, when the Soviet Union disintegrates itself in the end of 1991, um, the binding glue of Cold War conservatism uh, vanishes with it. And the opposition to communism and to the Soviet Union had really kept the American conservative movement together uh, throughout the Cold War. Now that it's gone, there's a debate that begins in the 1990s over what direction the American right should take. And there are figures such as Patrick Buchanan who say that in this post-Cold War world, the American right needs to go back to its original understanding of itself. It needs to go back to the right of the 1920s and the 1930s. It needs to be pro-free enterprise within the borders of the United States, but protectionist with regard to the global economy. It needs to be restrictionist toward immigration, and it needs to stop intervening overseas, the America First principles. So Buchanan is introducing all of this in the early 1990s. And you also have other populist figures like Ross Perot on the, on the chessboard as well, who are voicing somewhat similar claims, but in different ways, right? And who are very popular among um, Republican voters and um, the grassroots of the, of the party. Uh, so this debate is kind of, it goes on for really, um, you know, uh, 20 years, 25 years or so. And over time, the conservative elites, um, the ones who are anti-Buchanan, uh, who are anti-Perot, the ones who want to maintain uh, or expand on what Cold War conservatism meant, um, you know, uh, including kind of global markets, um, global use of American force in order to uphold world order, uh, uh, open immigration, or at least uh, a large-scale legal immigration to the United States, they are continually under um, assault. And I think the real break point happens in George W. Bush's second term. George W. Bush tries to enact a comprehensive immigration reform, 
that includes um, an amnesty for illegal immigrants who have been in the country for um, some time. And the grassroots of the Republican Party uh, revolts and the, the bill goes nowhere. The war in Iraq uh, launched in 2003, the second war in Iraq, uh, does not go well in George W. Bush's second term. He doesn't begin to change his strategy until his final two years in office. And you see as early as 2008 uh, with the rise of Ron Paul, that among young people on the right in particular, there is a renewed resistance to American intervention, to the idea of America as the guarantor of global security. And then at the end of George W. Bush's term is the financial crisis, another global economic event that delegitimizes the economic policies of the incumbent Republican administration. And so as a result of those three things, after 2008, the American right is uh, extremely anti-elitist. It's suspicious of both Democrats and Republicans. It is populist. It is nationalist. It's in that Buchananite mold. And that lays the groundwork um, for Trump's rise in 2015 and 2016. With all that said, then, is there a way to fix things? Because it seems like the the Republican Party is in a fairly dire place right now for, I think, both – I mean, both for liberals but also for people who care about a lot of what we think of as traditional conservative or intellectual conservative values. Um, Trumpism is not a a good change in the American conservative movement. Um, Is there a way to get us back to something that looks more like the conservatism of – Goldwater or Reagan and less of the paleo Buchananite Bircher and so on that seems to have taken over. Well, I do think that when you look at the history over the span of a hundred years, um, it, it does suggest that the cold war conservatism of, uh, Goldwater, Buckley and Reagan may have been something of an aberration, um, that the kind of, uh, you know, baseline condition of the American right is something that is uh, protectionist, um, anti-immigrant, um, and uh, hostile toward overseas entanglements. Um, I will say that another problem um, with changing the current direction of the Republican Party is that from a political perspective, uh, the Republicans think things are going pretty well for them right now. Um, you know, they uh, they almost won the presidency in 2020. They picked up over a dozen House seats in 2020. They think that they're due for a really good election this year. So they're not really feeling any cost or consequence uh, for taking this new direction. Uh, they're looking at these polls that show that Hispanic Americans are now splitting their vote on the generic ballot between the two parties. Um, so, so I think that's, uh, a reason to be skeptical that there's going to be any major change, uh, in the Republican party, uh, for the time being. I do think that, um, events matter and leadership matters. And right now the party continues to be dominated by the figure of Trump. And until that changes, there's really no, I think, prospect of a, um, of a renewed conservatism in the vision, say, of Ronald Reagan. Um, Reagan conservatives are still there in the Republican Party, uh, but they are now part of a coalition, uh, the majority of which is Trump conservative. If conservatism, if American conservatism has something to offer of value in, in governing, which is a part of the argument of your book, is that these these ideas have have value, have brought value, uh, but you're talking to an electorate and especially a younger electorate that is very turned off by what they see as American conservatism right now, whether that's Trumpism or or everything adjacent to it um, and the, the kind of hard turn to the um, – hard turn to the culture war and so on. What's the what's the fundamental message of American conservatism for convincing 
the the next generation of voters to either come back to it or to have an appreciation for it as as a possible path forward. Look, I mean, I don't. I, I think events matter more than ideas in shaping the political attitudes of a generation. Um, from my perspective, um, an American conservatism that doesn't prioritize freedom is not worth supporting. I think that American conservatism is distinct because of its adjectival description. It's American. And what that means is that, as I've been saying, it looks to the American founding for inspiration. It doesn't look toward any royalty or any aristocracy or any blood and soil. It's the American founding, those principles. And then the political architecture of the Constitution as a way to secure the goods mentioned in the preamble, right? Among which is uh, the blessings of liberty, right? And so uh, that's what I think American conservatism is meant to defend, that understanding of politics and the, tr the political tradition that kind of emanates from it. And that has changed and been modified over time, as any tradition um, will will be. Um, so uh, all I can say is that conservatives need to keep making the case for freedom and need to keep making the case for um, constitutionalism and for individual rights and liberty and um, also the case for those in, those cultural and social institutions that as I said help equip people to exercise their liberty responsibly because if uh, you know if they don't have that sense of responsibility if they they haven't been molded to to make the right choices to understand the world in which they operate then uh, liberty can turn easily into license um, so I think that's the job of an American conservative. Um, it's a hard job. <laughs> it's, you know, we conservative intellectuals uh, have never really been in the, you know, in the majority. Uh, uh, we, we tend to be make our arguments in small magazines and we tend every now and then we have a very popular spokesperson. Um, and then when you're really lucky, you find an inspirational leader. Uh, who it comes at a time when the public is open to alternatives. And that, that was Reagan in, 19, in 1980, because as I say, the events of that time, the stagflation, the hostage crisis, the Soviets uh, running amok in Afghanistan, um, the events of that time made people and young people very open to what Reagan represented. Um, the events of our time, I think are souring a lot of young people uh, on, on everything. Um, on you know on America on on um, on on the Constitution on on liberty and free speech and I think maybe we need to target our arguments there um, but it's not going to be easy. Thank you for listening to Reactionary Minds, a project of the Unpopulist. If you want to learn more about the rise of a liberalism and the need to defend a free society check out theunpopulist.substack.com.